everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Visitors Might Be Listening, the only podcast in the world. I'm your host, Louis Ryan, back again for another exciting edition of our uh, Monkey Talk series, I guess, is what we've informally called this. Um, the whole time where we're looking at each of the Planet of the Apes films, that exciting series that started in the late 60s and is going on till the present day with a new film coming out next year. So I'm excited to talk about it. Today we're talking about the fourth film in the franchise from 1972, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. But before we get to that, I'm going to introduce our lovely co-hosts, who um, you cannot see, but take my word for it. This week I'm going to shake things up dramatically, and I'm going to introduce <laughs> Mr. Chris Chobin first. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. You have cursed me to find empathy in uh, a man in an ape mask. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm excited to hear more about that. I can hear the emotion deep in the jowls of your voice. Mike, I have you batting cleanup today in terms of introduction. So how are you doing, Mr. Mike Levito? I, well, it's real. I guess I'm really third, which means is I am. it is the franchise player spot, so I'll take it. I'm doing well. I, I, I've, I've, I thought about referring to this as like Ape Quest as opposed to Monkey Talk, but I, I think either work. I, you know. that, that is a good suggestion for a name. <laughs> If I let you into the production meetings, that would have been a great suggestion. I'm excited to talk about this film. I'm sure you guys are chomping at the bit to let us know your exciting thoughts on this wonderful, wonderful, happy-go-lucky movie. But before we get to that, I have a little question just to break the ice, as it were. The past few weeks, I've kind of asked you guys like sort of big questions about like favorite works in terms of science fiction genre, but I... I had decided, since the movie is so fun, I'm going to ask a little fun icebreaker today. And uh, In the history of science fiction, there have been lots of uh, funny robot characters, so I thought it'd be interesting just to pick your guy's brain a little and ask, like, what are you, some of your favorite fictional robots, maybe from movies or TV, or maybe from a book even? Um, Mike or Chris, do either of you have, have one that you want to answer first? I like... R2-D2. Who doesn't like R2-D2? I've been picking the most obvious answers throughout all these questions, so I'm going to go with the, the most obvious one. R2-D2. Fun little guy. You know what? Uh, R2-D2 is also George Lucas's favorite character <laughs> in the Star Wars franchise, and you know, you two have very similar personality types, <laughs> we, in we my opinion. We both speak in beeps, it's true. <laughs> That's a hard one. I, like, uh... Remember, you have to answer to honestly. You are under oath. <laughs> the first one that springs to mind is Terminator, just because it's so like he gets to play both sides, and it's 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 Arnold for goodness sakes. But I think I'll have to go with the Iron Giant, that uh, he just kind of slaps and is awesome. He is not gun, even though he is. Two good answers, Chris. T eight hundred obviously has been in many many movies, played by Arnold, um, to the point of diminishing returns, and uh, Iron Giant famously was only in one movie until he was in steven spielberg's seminal ready player one he came His back yeah i mean that's what everyone really likes about the iron giant now i'm gonna go with uh my buddy my pal mr tom servo from mystery science theater 3000 that little red robot who likes to make uh, musical references and stuff um he's just such a delight and I i've met him in person so i can't i can't deny that he's one of my favorites good, good to know he's not a prima donna behind the scenes no, no, certainly not. Um, and he's a lot bigger in person than you would think. A lot of times when you meet these guys, they're they're smaller, but like <laughs> kind of big. He's like three feet tall. Not great at dressing himself, though. 
So that's our favorite fictional robots, everybody. Please let us know if you have any favorites of your own. If there's anybody who's a fan of C-3PO, please write in. Our email address is contactwithpostwriter.com. But let's get started with the actual movie discussion today. So, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, guys. Um, What did you guys think, first of all? I thought that this was the best Planet of the Apes movie since the original. I appreciated how it was very short, quick, and to the point. And it got me thinking, you know... The, the big, like, discussion point when people talk about movies nowadays is how many sequels there are. So many sequels, blah, blah, blah. And, and people are, I think, rightfully annoyed by that. But I feel like they'd be less annoying if they weren't all two and a half hours long and they were more like <laughs> this movie where they were, like, a tight 88 and also were just, like, had a very clear clarity of purpose. This is a story we're telling you. Here's the story. End of movie. I appreciated its brevity quite a bit. Yeah, I, I I think I wasn't giving enough credit for its brevity that like it just got it got to it, and then more importantly that there wasn't in like the prior movies like a whole act that was just kind of like time out of place, like weird seventies eighties like uh, like uh, tone jarring piece. It was just like okay, let's buckle down, but uh, have apes overthrow semi fascist society, and that's uh, the the villain was chewing the scenery, and I really liked that. Wow, wow, wow. It, it just goes how you guys are truly invested in this podcast experience where you're applauding these films more for their brevity <laughs> than anything else. Uh, it really, uh, it's really endearing to our listeners, probably, if we had any. <laughs> yeah, so this film is simple and to the point. I, I'll just mention it since I've mentioned it the past few weeks. The, uh, the budget for this film. Last week, last time, it was uh, $2 million for Escape. The, the geniuses at Fox, hey, they, they slashed the budget again to a 1.7 million. It's like, I, wow, I, wow, wow. I feel wow. like this 1.7 went way further than the last movie. Like, they, it's like all the sets are like pretty well done. And I think they just found like a really good brutalist building to house everything in. But like, I don't know, the, the, it felt like a good world. I was going to say, their, their black turtleneck budget must have been pretty high. Um, <laughs> that's surprising to me, considering that there are many more ape costumes in this movie. Like, And that they seem all... They all seem pretty quality. Like, I, I think what really is that they, they took all the... Between... Uh, they just stole all the uniforms from the, like, World War II Nazi films, I think. Yeah, it, it did seem that way. And it was... I feel like I was reading somewhere where actually the, the, the uniforms were kind of... I don't know if they were literally borrowed, but kind of like the idea for them was borrowed from somewhere. The the uh, apes uniforms. Yeah, the apes uniforms. Well, the apes uniforms are sort of a meant to be like an early de- derivation of like what they end up in in well, Planet yeah. of the Apes. Yeah, um, but I, thought I, I, I did read... that like scene when they were getting trains that each one of the races was getting trained separately or whatever, and they sort of seeing the beginnings of the the class structure they would evolve into. Yeah, so you guys have already mentioned a lot of stuff that I uh, wanted to delve into, but I guess we'll just start off by sort of just outlining the premise at the outset of the beginning of the movie. So despite the fact that this movie was only released one year later, we immediately jump in to um, this film is set 20 years after the last one, 1991, so the early 90s. We're immediately introduced to sort of like this as Chris was saying, sort of brutalist architecture, sort of like a dystopian fascist version of America. 
Mike, what's going on? Why why are there so many apes running around in 1991? Right. So so the sort of backstory slash prophecy, I guess, that Cornelius describes in Escape from the Planet of the Apes has has come to pass. There was a plague that was brought back from outer space by a bunch of astronauts, and it killed all the dogs and cats in the world. There are monuments to dogs and cats now. I believe 1983 is when they peg it as happening. And so, because humans can't can't go on without their little pets, they domesticate apes, and they find that apes are receptive to training and to language, even though they can't speak themselves. And so they're trained to do a bunch of household tasks. You have apes going around shopping, they're cutting hair, they're even cooking some meals. They're, they're basically treated like slaves. They, they, they are doing all this menial work while... Uh, it, 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 and it's created a bit of a... Uh, you know, some tension, not just between ape and man, although apes don't really don't have, they can't perceive the tension. But also, you know, it, it's put waiters out of work. We see we see a, a bunch of protesting waiters outside of a restaurant. And uh, that's that that's what's going on in America in, in 1991, that far off time. And I, I, for one, I think this film, despite only being made a year later, I think this film really manages to pull off the feel of being set 20 years later. Um, and I think a lot of that goes into the production design. It's very, very different. A little bit of backstory about that is that uh, the studio, 20th Century Fox, they owned like a large amount of land in California. And some of the land they actually sold um, went into the construction of uh, what is now Century City, California. And so like all those buildings that were designed are like the super then hyper modern buildings, which really, I think, pulls off the um, sort of futuristic architecture. So. It's interesting how like they were actually they actually built like a real city using the land from the studio and then the studio came to shoot the next movie there and I think it really uh, did a great job. Yeah, and it feels like a very 70s vision of dystopia where as you mentioned Chris it's all like the brutalist architecture, a lot of concrete and then, like I said lot lot lots of black turtlenecks as well. I was actually going to say that I this film I feel like just looking at it if you, I didn't know, I feel like it, I could say this was made in like 1982. Because it oh. feels very, very sort of like that '80s sort of post-apocalyptic feel, and like the the sets they feel very like the Death Star in Star Wars, like the inside of the um, Governor's Control Center. It sort of has that sort of gray and under like the back panel lighting that the Death Star has. So it's very interesting that this actually pre-Star Wars all that stuff. I agree. Pre- it actually, reminded me a lot of the uh, like Heisei era Godzilla films in its production design. Chris, uh, what do you think of the the beginning third of this movie? What do you what do you like? They dispense with the follow up conversation very quickly, uh, even though it is a little discussy. But at least it's sort of like you're getting into the swing of like, okay, why does he not know anything? Oh, because he's been pro- played into the circus. The three things we know are that the uh, the the police are mostly monkey catchers. They wear fascist uniforms, uh, and that the 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 circus doesn't exist anymore. Um, but I think they do a pretty good job of throwing you into, yeah, this sort of new world as it is. The idea that, I guess maybe it didn't, the, the, the threat of the monkeys, especially the specific threat of like knowing that the dog and cat plague was coming and then they just didn't do anything about it, I guess is a little weird, but maybe they just didn't trust that that was actually going to happen. But that I guess we, we've, we've mitigated that it's a fascist state or it's heading that direction. Um, but it seems to just kind of be a, 
uh, at least for the humans, like a pretty good place to live. So you can sort of understand why maybe they've sort of lived in the complacency of uh, being mistreated by or having people mistreated around them. And then sort of the sort of waiters and those sort of people losing out, I think is, is pretty well done. Right. And you were talking about um, our new main character, which is uh, Caesar, played by uh, Roddy McDowell, returning as the new character, playing his own son. He's quite convincing playing like an 18 year old son despite the fact that he's in like his 40s i guess none of us really know what an 18 year old ape would look like compared to like a 40 year old those masks really hide the wrinkles well so caesar of course to most people listening today they're probably familiar with the newer trilogy of planet of the apes movie caesar is the main character played by andy circus were you guys surprised visiting this movie and it's like oh caesar is actually a character from the original series for stuff did that uh, play into it you're watching at all I kind of guessed that just because that they really, um, you can tell in the remake, that's one of those items that feels like they're presenting it with like weight as if like, oh, you're Caesar. Like, like that that's sort of one of those items that's like a, a callback or whatever. But what I didn't realize is that he's not named Caesar until like halfway through the movie. That like, that's not his uh, given name. That's like his slave name. Uh, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Well, isn't it though? Isn't his name already Caesar? But he oh, he then chooses yeah. Caesar from the book. Oh, okay. Yeah, Armando uh, like named him Caesar, I guess, in okay. the circus. Armando, played by Ricardo Montalban, everyone's favorite character from the last movie. He makes a return appearance. It's honestly kind of interesting the way they set it up, where you think maybe they're building up to more because they they get helicoptered in yeah to Century City. <laughs> But apparently it's just to, like, hand out flyers for the circus. There's a little bit of sweatiness in certain plot points of this movie. But unlike in the prior ones where there was a lot of sweatiness surrounding a series of weird puzzle pieces, this is, okay, we're going to sweat a little bit so that we can have a tight 90-minute plot. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. We're getting to it. I, what was I going to say? Oh, like, one thing that really stood out to me about this movie is that and we'll probably get into this a little bit later. I might be jumping the gun a bit. I've never done that before on a podcast. What's interesting to me is that this is really, this is really the first of these movies where there isn't, you don't have, I feel like a human kind of guide or avatar or whatever, really guiding us through what's happening for most of the movie. Like it, you like Armando kind of has that role early on, but eventually this really becomes Caesar's movie. And I think that's, like, having seen two out of the three, you know, 21st century apes movies, like, that's what surprised me. Because those are very much movies about Caesar the Ape. Whereas the first couple movies are really about kind of the humans and their reaction to the apes. This is the one where first, I feel like, is mostly told from an ape's perspective. And the fact that uh, at least a solid chunk of that is caesar saying next to nothing because he's not allowed to because he's in the system and like he's not allowed to say anything i know i thought that was pretty good it was well done that they showed his character and that kind of stuff i think maybe a little bit too much and this would have been hard to do but like him trying to hide his intelligence a little bit more so that he doesn't stand out from the crowd quite as much but that maybe he sort of can't help it just because he's been thrust into this superstructure of power and all that kind of stuff but i think it was well done yeah what i what i like about this movie is that it's because there's no, like, it is kind of just focused on Caesar, and he's kind of, like, alone for most of the movie. This is definitely, like, the darkest entry in the series. It's a film where it's, like, hate is and <laughs> being evil is, like, sort of at the depths of its soul. All the human characters are terrible. 
and it's like this this franchise is already sort of already kind of like dark and depressing when you kind of think about it so it just goes to show just how far this film like really emphasizes that and i think it's really in a way kind of the most reflective of the time period in which it was made in a way because i was watching the behind the scenes documentary and i'm sure you guys could speak about this more more so than i can but like there was a lot of stuff going on around 1972 that was that played into like the idea that it's like hey there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world let's uh let's talk about it and my, mike already brought up sort of the the big thematic idea it's it's very subtle but a lot of this movie is built upon the idea that the apes are sort of like uh, the underappreciated minority which is kind of used as like a racial metaphor in this movie right mike yeah it is there there's a character who's the uh kind of like the the advisor to the governor the governor uh breck breck played by don murray and then you have his uh assistant mcdonald um don murray is white austin stoker is black and he's he's portrayed as uh the the most sympathetic to the apes and you know he there's conversations between he and caesar where you know caesar says something about him being as caesar being a slave and then surely you can understand as the descendants of slaves yourself and all of that so there definitely is trying to be a metaphor there you know I uh, I don't know how that metaphor would be taken today, given the kind of historical rhetoric that surrounds uh, you know people comparing African Americans to, to to apes. Like I, I I feel like that probably wouldn't fly in twenty twenty three, but they try their best in this movie. And actually, reading about it, they did try to shoot some of the later scenes um, in the style of like a news broadcast um, to give that visceral feel. And we'll talk about what happens later. I don't want to jump for it. But I'll just say, like, you know, this movie was only two years removed from the Kent State shooting. And I would imagine a lot of the imagery in that movie reminded some people of that. Well, not just that. You also had, like, the Watts riots yep. that went on in Los Angeles. So, yeah, this film is definitely, yeah, the later parts are definitely meant to evoke sort of the footage that people would be seeing on sort of the nightly news at the time. Unlike the prior ones where it really feels like you're rushing through every plot point in order to be able to hit every sort of like story beat uh and that none of them they don't sit and resonate with any of them that at least in this movie it feels like they're, they're willing to take a couple of those that like um uh caesar going through like the training process because one of the things that uh, ricardo told him to do if he didn't come back is to just go go down to the docks and become a part of the new uh one of the wild apes being trained in the story like breaks into this cage and goes to the training system. Um, <laughs> and that the ape training system has, like, they really do a good job of, like, making this, like, lively office, like, uh, auctioneer sort of feel and vibe that, like, it's a real sort of a real institution that I think really helps sell the rest of it, that everything feels like it's built into the world pretty well. Didn't, uh, Chris, didn't that, the whole, like, the, like they call it like, the ape management center or whatever, didn't it remind you of the prison from Andor a little bit? Yes, that's sort of like there's a system, there's a feel. You can tell there's like a little bit of stuff going on with the guards, mm-hmm. but that like there's there's a structure, yeah. Yeah, and they're they're kind of like working. I mean, like in Andor, they're building some kind of machinery. In this, they're being trained how to be, you know, household servants. Then you have kind of like the shock, um, ah. you know, like the, they get shocked if they're like in between the cell or whatever. It, I, I do wonder if like. Uh, Dan Gilroy or whichever Gilroy worked on 
Andor was was watching this movie for some inspiration for for Andor. But the, my my favorite, I think, was the uh, was Chekhov's flamethrower. Yes. That, like they they go through the like the serving area and one of the apes freaks out with a fire. It's like, damn, I was I was told that they were fire trained and that you just like pan over and there's three people in ape costumes with a flamethrower being shot at them. It's like I guess they did tell us that flame flame was a part of this. <laughs> like, yeah. That's the way you gotta learn, Chris. You gotta learn to not be afraid of fire. By, like by being waiters. handed a banana while a flamethrower has is next to your head. <laughs> the, the ape training thing to me is so funny too because it's like because uh, eventually you know Caesar is 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 uh, he excels at all these different challenges in the mm-hmm. management center because he's you know an advanced ape, and then so the the governor governor breck who who has like a very you know he just kind of lords over everything they they get him and they initially try to train him to be a to, to, to be a bartender but all that training consists of is, is of mcdonald like making a scotch and soda and then saying do like <laughs> like there's like a, a relatively complex test just being like do and then yeah. caesar you know kind of intentionally fails it but I, I found uh, I found the idea they're just like basically yelling at the apes to do things, and then of course towards the end they keep trying to do that, but the apes have kind of you know oh, broken through. That I, I like that was one of the parts of the world that I thought was going to be really hokey, just because that's what it was in the previous movies. But by like that part of the movie, they're the actors are saying it with such like authority as if they've like said it a thousand times before. That like I start to believe it, and that like they do it well enough across the different areas that I'm like, okay, I can I can see human beings like just getting used to this, uh, just do, just like treating them like robots or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, with like, you know, there was a movie that came out last year, Nope, which also kind of plays with a similar idea of you know, a a chimpanzee, kind of, uh, all of a sudden they revert to their kind of animal instinct after being trained so well and of course that's kind of somewhat based off the the travis the chimp incident from like 10 years ago where Mm -hmm. a chimp that was kept as a pet once it felt threatened went absolutely insane and and did really terrible things to somebody so there's precedent to it and and that that idea you know that there's just you know a fine line between domestication and whatever the opposite of domestication is Um, animal instinct i guess is yeah, it's yeah. kind of harrowing especially you know considering how many people and i say this as a dog lover like how many people just keep animals in their house i th- i like watching um these older movies like from the 70s and earlier like what what Kyle Chris was saying like these actors really do a great job like mm-hmm. convincing you that this is like real like the the way they talk to these apes because like it's such like from a, a pre-focused on intellectual property time that it's like you really need good actors like really great character actors to like really do a convincing job that this is like all real um, cuz they can't skate by and it's like oh this is the same actor that played that character from X movie 30 years ago you just get you get like the guy that was really good at you know acting i saw him in a play or something so i cast him um, and i think uh, don murray who plays governor breck is really good in the in the movie what did you guys think of uh, governor breck the character i i love don murray's performance in this it's definitely kind of over the top but I think really entertainingly so gave, gave me a little bit of Ron DeSantis vibes. I'm not going to lie. Um, but just so good. All of his overheated monologues. I loved the scene when the apes are breaking into the command post and they're like, they're, they're, they're basically sort of, you know, it's, it's kind of, there's like a steel door basically that's supposed to protect the humans. And then you see they're basically 
they must have a blowtorch or something and they're going through it and he just runs up to the door and goes how how <laughs> it was like at once a little campy but it was also just this like incredible you know uh all-powerful person all of a sudden exasperated because they they just can't comprehend that everything's falling down around them i thought he was awesome yeah it's just like it's so great because it's like he has these florid like yelling monologues about like apes and like mm-hmm human the human race and stuff and it's like it is like it is based on like the foundation that like he is right (laughs) like the apes will rise up but it's also like he's part of the problem because like they're they're treating the apes like such a like a slave race Mm -hmm. essentially um and i I do think it's worth bringing up that uh the don murray the great don murray he was in uh twin peaks the return for multiple episodes he played bushnell mullins and i i just have to mention that he was part of the the two-hander in the greatest scene in television history when uh, agent cooper obligated <laughs> when agent cooper finally awakes and bushnell mullins is like well what about the fbi and agent cooper's just like i am the fbi so <laughs> i i uh, think what what balances him out as a like uh, as a villain is that he is hamming it up but he believes his own hamminess like that so often you can have someone that's hamming up in so many other films especially bad movies where you get a good actor to come in and ham it up that the movie isn't bad enough or maybe they're not willing to believe the hamminess that they are putting into it that they're kind of winking at the camera a little bit but like every time he does a hammy thing you expect him to like pull back but he really just doubles down into it and it's like okay i guess this just guy is sort of a maniacal uh, not quite power hungry but uh reasonably scared and just using the only tool he knows how to do which is force yeah i wonder um because like he is essentially playing a politician it's like we politicians are kind of i feel like naturally um inclined to towards being hammy in a certain way maybe it's more apparent now than it was in 1972 (laughs) um he seems more mannered but it's also like his situation is getting more precarious as the movie goes along where he's like in doing his last stand in a bunker so it's like it's only natural that you would go a little bit more crazy right yeah i guess there is something kind of kind of kind of hitler-esque about what's happening to him isn't there yeah and i think what also kind of feels modern too is just like the clear contempt he has for everybody or it's like i feel like there is a certain segment of modern politicians who have just kind of uh even though they, they're clearly trying to cater to one sector of the electorate they also just like have clear contempt for the rest of it and that that felt like a particularly mo- modern uh, modern character trait. Uh, do, what ways do you think, if you made this movie today, like you would change to make it more modern? So I I think and like I said I feel like this is like a very seventies vision of dystopia. Like there there'd be more of like a technological angle to what's going on, right? It wouldn't, like, there would have to be, either you'd have to do it where, like, the apes are also, like, maybe they have, like, a brain chip or something that's controlling them, or they're interacting with, like, AI or something. Maybe there's a hierarchy where it's, like, you have humans, then robots, then apes. Or maybe it's a thing where basically, like, certain, like, information technology has just kind of failed us, and that's why we're relying on apes, I think is a big part of it. And also, I I wonder, I feel like there'd be more of a uh, corporation angle to it too right we're, we're still we're still we're still in the days of the uh the new deal coalition so it's like oh like the gut it's a government agency that's running all this stuff now i feel like it's like there'd be some tie between profit like, okay, angle what's that 
there'd be a, like a profit angle. Yeah. Like that would be sort of the motivating driver to that of why we're treating them so poorly, at least. It'd be like uh, what's like 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 Breck would own like you know shares in the importer who's bringing in the apes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, the, the the thing that I think would probably get changed, right? I hope would get changed. What that like they aren't as right about the apes. That like uh, the the gap between Caesar and the apes. That there probably would have been like two generations. That like maybe it was like Caesar's kid. Uh, and that, like, the apes would have, uh, like, in being forced to be a part of human society, they end up being like cats and dogs, that they, like, they learn to adjust to us in doing that. Like, we sort of force them to evolve quicker um, uh, into the more intelligent creatures that eventually Caesar and them will become. Like, that we directly, by throwing them into our society, make the thing which will destroy us. Um, and so that, like, this system would be like more out of date that like when our when our parents when their parents were like talking about oh the apes that they are just apes and we need to like te teach them everything that like eventually they do genuinely become just like a total underclass of something that is at least equal or of similar intelligence and so like that that would be played with more that the difference between the rhetoric and the reality Interesting, interesting thoughts, guys. I, I had two while you guys were talking. Uh, I do think it would be interesting, and this is just like blatantly ripping off Django Unchained, if there was like an ape that was sort of like a house ape, that was like the mm. governor's ape, like Steven and Django Unchained, and he was sort of like the actual brains behind the governor. Or just like an ape, you know, that was on their side, you know, on like the yeah. fascist mm -hmm. government side, and was like, you know, trying to um, keep things in control. Because like he, his position was mm -hmm. threatened by, you know, the idea of equality for all the apes or something. And uh, the other thing I had, this is more of a joke, but, like, I was thinking of, since Mike was talking about technology, I was thinking, like, if you made this movie in the mid-90s, that there'd be, like, one ape that was, like, good in ha at hacking. And it's, like, <laughs> they'd sneak in, like, the ape, and it's, like, the ape's on a computer. It's, like, I'm in I'm in the system. <laughs> it's, like, shows the ape with his fingers on the keyboard. Come, come on, it would, it would definitely be... Uh, he's he's typing with his fingers here and he's typing with his toes over I was there. Say. Like, <laughs> but the the I, I like I like the uh, another political elf ape like a Machiavellian ape because that would also make sense of why did the ape society turn into this fascist state? Like I know they're gonna play with that in the next in like the next coming movies, but like that if you just have Caesar as the only leader, you don't have a lot of conflict within the apes. And so that's why at the end he sort of has to play, he has to like pivot himself to become the evil idea and like do this. I thought pretty cool little like like uh, fascists like we we they we they were the oppressors and now we shall destroy them. Speech before he pulls back to humanity. That I think that would make that back half of the movie have a little bit more interesting conflict with the story. Yeah, definitely. This film definitely suffers from the fact that we only really get to know Caesar as, like, a character on the ape side. The only other one is uh, Lisa, played by returning actress Natalie Trundy, who's back. And, and I'm sure Chris loves that there's an actress in this movie who has one word of dialogue. <laughs> well, it, at least the word of dialogue, it like, it seems to matter. I Like, that it's like, oh, she's the other one that gets to speak. Like, this is the voice of the rest of the apes sort of crying out. But the that her three prior scenes are her getting inseminated by Caesar, 
Um, uh, I guess the rest of the middle scenes are pretty good of like her and Caesar having like a connection from afar. Um, and then eventually her becoming a part of like the revolution. I thought that was cool. But I, I thought it would be scenes with her might have been helpful to bridge the gap between the death of Caesar's father figure, which throws him to make the rebellion. But I think it would have been better for us to see the underside, like sort of ape, ape servant culture. Like we sort of saw the, uh, we saw things from the institutional perspective, but we never saw like sort of like the culture that developed outside the view of humans. And that would have been like a cool place to, I think, show what the apes were like, give them humanity, show how intelligent they are, and give you a bit more of a through line into the revolution. Yeah, and to that point, we actually never really see the apes in the home, right? We see them in mm -hmm. places of business, but we don't really see that how they're treated like in a house or anything like that. Yeah, as far as we know, Breck is only the governor of like this little development. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Essentially like an outdoor mall outlet space. <laughs> What's his honorific? It's like the the most esteemed governor or something like. It's like, his, it like his that was definitely one of the things pointing towards fascism. I'm like, okay, it's like his excellency or something like. There that. you go. There you go. Uh, the yeah. governor. I think they talk. Don't they talk about like provinces or like hinterlands or something like that? Like it's clear <laughs> it's that something. there's like all wilderness out there where 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 the circus lives. Yeah, it's like what did George H. W. Bush do? Like, yeah. why is America <laughs> like this? He said he was going to bring about a new world order, and I guess this is the world. <laughs> there you go. This is the world where they we lost the Gulf War. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's just it's just interesting to um, talk about this movie in contrast with like the new trilogy, which this film is obviously like the original inspiration. Because the new trilogy, mm -hmm. there's a lot of scenes of like the apes talking with each other, and obviously they they're not as articulate as like the apes in the first movie. There's, so it's a lot of like sign language and using subtitles, and mm -hmm. I guess it shows like how much audiences have changed in terms of expectations, in terms of what we want out of a movie where talking intelligent apes are sort of like the central characters. Could you have done a film where it's like based around sign language and having subtitles? I'm not so sure, but I, I mean, we have them now. I, I do think it would have been helpful to have more fleshed out ape characters and maybe it would have been beneficial, like Chris said, to have the movie set a little bit later than just 20 years down the line where you can have a more believable jump in terms of how intelligent the apes are. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's all, hand, you know, it's it's very much just a thing where it's like Caesar shows up, just kind of like nods at the apes, and then they do something. Like, there's not a whole lot of... It's, yeah. Caesar is very much the mastermind of, of most of what goes on. And I, I think it does a pretty good job of showing you how oppressed the apes are, because that's sort of like the through line of the movie. But the idea that these apes would just... That, 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 yeah, the first scene, and you, it like, took you me a little while to figure out what was happening, that he just starts looking and nodding at them, and then they start doing rebellious acts. I was like, oh, did, was there a scene that happened where, like, they made this a mission or something? And then they, it cuts to the basement, and um, this is where I think I really like this movie, is the little minutia points of how the rebellion works and how the fascist state works that, like, I think are really good. Uh, like that the he's using the messages he's he's adding things to the messages to get like bits and pieces off the edge i thought that was cool and the other one being um how they figure out who he is is uh via like looking through the logs and finding an error is like 
there's you, there couldn't be an ape coming from wherever Papua New Guinea. Like oh, the yeah. only only this type of monkey lives there. I thought that was cool. I do think that scene where he like sneaks into the cage and like you see like the naked ape costumes that was a lot better than in Beneath the Planet of the Apes where you have the sauna scene with uh, <laughs> Isaias <laughs> and uh, General Ursus. Yeah, that was that was better in my opinion. Or or the gorilla in Escape from the Planet of the Apes because like they, they they did have the ubiquitous. Uh, uh, cute baby monkey scene, so I'm glad for that. Yeah, so one, one little piece of behind-the-scenes trivia I did want to bring up, because uh, Mike brought up the uh, black turtleneck that the governor and seemingly everyone wears. It, it's interesting how... Because it seems, like, so obvious to us, I guess, like, if you were making this kind of movie, what would these people wear is, like, black? But uh, apparently, in the behind-the-scenes I watched, like, Don Murray talked with the director, Jay Lee Thompson, and it's like, I just read the script, and it's like, I know what I want to wear. A black turtleneck. <laughs> and then the director was like, yes, that's brilliant. So, um, I don't know. I mean, if, if Don Murray didn't suggest that, would they have been wearing different outfits? Would they have been wearing, like, tie-dye 70s outfits with, like, a peace medallion? <laughs> just like those, those, those print shirts with, like, the massive collars that... <laughs> the other thing that i was reading too that that Dal murray did was that like he also learned his dialogue in german just so he felt more like a nazi <laughs> and yeah, so he, he would like understand the tenor of yeah. that kind of speech yeah and so that he could del deliver it in like a harsher manner when he did it in, in english which is i mean that that's commitment <laughs> actual acting yeah as opposed to just being handsome yeah, as opposed to just faking an Elvis accent during your awards. Uh, that's one of the things that's missing from this movie is sort of the, like, they've stopped, in part because the apes are finally integrated into human society. You just get to be thrown into the world. You don't have to have this, like, what? Apes? Like, or apes? Humans are talking. Like, that's just sort of, that's already been solved. And you can just run off into the world, which I think it makes everything a little easier. I was going to say also, like, there's no, like, ape pop culture. Like, yeah. is are there, like, Beethoven and Airbud movies, but starring apes instead of dogs? You know? Oh, that would be great. Yeah, there are ape exploitation films. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I guess that's the point in which this does seem uh, not, I mean, just starting at the fact of, like, you're making apes an underclass of society in which African Americans also exist. And so it was good to, I guess, acknowledge these this what is happening but the yeah the going back to uh your point about uh like this being a stereotype thrust into the situation that you can kind of tell that they were trying to go after something metaphorical and it just doesn't quite resonate because it feels like they didn't quite understand what was happening there yeah so i think we've talked a lot about the tone and sort of feel of the movie so i think we can just sort of skip along to the exciting ending where you sort of get, like, the revolution finally starts their takeover, and basically, like, they they manage to um, take control of, like, the sort of, like, ape training center and whatnot. Did you guys like this scene? Was it a well-directed action sequence? Were you feeling tense action on par with the latest John Wick film? What did you guys think? <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was well done. I thought it was very kind of disorienting and disturbing. Like I said, I, I'm sure that obviously, yes, things like the Watts riots, the post-MLK riots was probably fresh in people's minds when they were making this. Also, just the image of, you know, like the governor sending a bunch of armed people to confront an angry crowd and then those people getting shot. Like I said, 
It's Kent State, which basically happened two years earlier. I thought it was good. I, I thought I thought it looked well for like you know a, a movie whose whose budget was once again slashed. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed also speaking of of kind of uh, campiness. It was there's uh, the whole like news broadcast where it's like uh, they have the guy on TV and he's like, oh, the governor ha- has has released a a special notice saying that all humans are to stay at home until further notice. And until further notice and then he gets like a ball to hand to him he's like ah i guess this is it now and then he reads it and he's shocked he just goes the apes have taken control of ape management um it was like a really uh i i thought that was like very funny but yeah no i, I thought this was great like you know i think actually not having a lot of dialogue between the apes made it so you didn't really know what was going to happen next right like there was didn't there was not a lot of exposition there um stuff just kind of played out yeah, I thought the the one part I think where they lost me is as soon as the ape starts, it's like sort of face on with the apes. Like, I the the some of those scenes that got kind of the tension got sizzled out of a little bit versus the ones where they're actually like fighting into it and going hard and just being able to do sort of this being like I think feels like one of the last fetches where you just tell it you just get a shit ton of uh, extras to just like do things at each other. Uh, I thought that was cool. And um, so the ending is sort of the the apes have managed to succeed and overwhelm the governor's forces. And they actually drag the governor out into sort of the main square. And he's basically like surrounded by 50, 100, basically way too many apes for him to fight, fight off. And the apes are all holding guns at him. And Caesar is like standing on a pedestal. And he's basically like, yes, we, we have succeeded. Maybe not today. Maybe not fully today, but, you know, eventually we'll take over and rule over the apes. And um, that that's sort of the first part of the ending. What did you guys uh, think of that? It, it felt like a have your cake and eat it too situation that, like, I I was really hoping for the movie that, that like, Caesar turns and gets angry. Like, it, it's a bit of a, a, a hairpin turn in into his sort of fascist speech. And then he pulls back from it. It's like, no, I am... Even though I am not a human, I shall show humanity, that kind of stuff. But it's like, okay, and I guess they do have some films to still fill out the rest of the series to like tr- to tell you how it goes from this to a fascist state. But then it did seem like such a good through line of just like, oh, no, they mistreated you. The revolution happens. The revolution hardened him, and he became sort of this dictator. Uh, I, I, yeah, but it's, it felt like a bit of a have your cake and eat it situation. Yeah, I, I enjoyed how his final speech, A, just Roddy McDowell making a full meal of that scene. An excellent mm. delivery, trilling R's and all. Um, I, I enjoyed how, like, his whole thing, it's not just like, oh, we're going to take over. It's like, we're going to take over, and then we're going to wait for the nukes to come, which we know are going to come, or I know are going to come, and yeah. then we'll really take over. Like, there's something kind of, like, uh, I guess, like, prophetic and sort of, like, it, it, it raises it from just becoming a kind of like political revolution there's almost kind of like a religious fervor there where it's like we're, yeah. we're waiting for the second coming we're waiting for this deliverance that's technically out of our control to happen so then we can inherit the earth but to your point chris with reading about this i'm sure lewis knows too from watching the behind the scenes stuff is that the original ending actually ended with the apes all killing the governor <laughs> um and I, I i like i as i was wa- i didn't know that before i watched this movie and i'm watching i'm like huh <laughs> This scene where he's, like, nice all of a sudden, they're not showing his mouth at all, and also just, like, the timbre of his voice sounds a little different, and it's yeah. because... That was, like, a reshoot? He, yeah, he, like, re-recorded his... Not even speech. a reshoot. 
They just had to edit the movie. Yeah. There you go. And, like, they actually, like, they, because, you know, they shot, like, the butts of the rifles coming down at the governor, so they just reversed it. Like, it's had to go backwards <laughs> instead. And then, and then only kept the that's, tight. That's why they have it right here, and they all come back and, like, have that weird, yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> that's so interesting. And then only had the tight shot on, on Caesar's eyes. But what I think is interesting, too, is that, if I remember correctly, in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Cornelius is telling this story, as it's told in, like, the ancient scrolls or whatever, about how... I don't remember if they say that the ape's name was Caesar when they're telling the whole story, but he says Aldo. Aldo, that's it. It's like he learned to say no, right? Mm. Whereas in in this movie, the one who says no is actually Lisa, who's the one who asked mm. for mercy. So you find mm. how, and again, I guess technically they screw up with the timeline by going back in the future, but how mm. like it, it's a creation myth, right? And like emphasis mm. on the word myth, right? It's like what the apes of later generations are told happens is actually very different from how it plays out. And I I thought that discrepancy was like a clever kind of, you know, commentary, I guess, in the way, the the kind of myth that civilizations and religions are built upon, I guess. You, 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 what, what once was a bunch of different characters gets coalesced into this one sort of seminal savior figure. Did you guys like want them to kill the governor? Did you have like strong feelings going into that? Or were you kind of like pleased with the direction it went in? How did you feel about how it ultimately turned out? Th- that killing the governor and uh, like the rage that that was the that speech was so good. Like that, like e- even though they I wish if they had gone that way fully to have seen. And this is where maybe like a couple eight scenes might have been good or at least a scene with Caesar and someone else. Uh, probably a, a, a scene with her and Caesar to be like, once we win, what will we do? Will we show them mercy or will we seek revenge? And that like, to have Caesar be like, no, we can't trust them. They will always try to oppress us or destroy us. And then that then justifies the bloodiness of the revolution and like leads to the chaos and leads to all the other stuff. Violence and revolution. I, I kind of wanted that to be true. And that, that felt like to make Caesar a more interesting character as opposed to this sort of seminal, I can pull back at the last moment and, and give this this crowd that I've whipped up into a fury to, to, to show mercy towards this uh, oppressor. Yeah, it felt a little contrived, I think, because clearly all the momentum is going towards killing this guy, and obviously that was the original plot, the, the okay. original idea. Yeah. It didn't ruin the movie for me by, by any means. I do think it kind of robbed it of having, you know, the end of the first movie is such a gut punch, and then they kind of try to replicate that starkness in, in beneath the planet of the apes and and, and escape from the planet of the apes, you know, where first you end with the nuclear bomb and then you end with um, the apes getting killed and then you have the twist of Caesar still being alive. Um, so yeah, it, it didn't ring very true to me, I guess. But like I said, it's not like it didn't ruin the movie for me by by, by any stretch. In, in the same way that like the his anger from that speech only kind of comes out in that speech but he's a good enough actor to do it that like him giving that speech i think is the best version of it to be like well i had to pull back we have to we have to show them humanity and that the the whole uh i am not a human but i can show humanity line is pretty good okay um yeah so a bit of backstory about the um the other cut the unrated cut the unrated (laughs) director's uh, cut as it is called on big uh, longer Uh, so this, it's like the original cut of the movie. So like when they made these movies, they were all planned with having like, obviously the first movie is a G rating. They all sort of wanted it to stick in that G rating, which it carried through for the first three movies. And then they made this movie hoping to get another G rating. So they turned in the first cut and they were like, 
oh no, this is an R-rated movie. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to do a lot of uh, cuts and manipulation. Like, as we said, like they couldn't even do reshoots of the ending, so they just had Roddy McDowell, like, ADR in that line, those lines at the very end, and, like, you couldn't show his mouth. And on top of that, the, the, uh, the unrated cut is much more violent in terms of the revolution. Like, you see a lot of, like, blood and good shots and stuff. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah, um, it's intense. And so when I first watched this movie years ago now at this point, I, I, had, mm -hmm. I saw on my DVD, it's like, oh, I have the choice between the theatrical cut or the unrated director's cut. And I was like, oh, cool, I'll watch that version. So then I, like, watched it. I was like, wow, that was something. And then when I went to watch the next movie, the, the it, it basically, like, makes no sense. When you watch because it was responding to the theatrical cut was had literally the opposite ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it has a completely different message and tone. So, like, in my opinion, I would recommend the unrated cut. Um, but it's like you can't expect to go into the next movie and like expect it to make like any sense. You're just going to be confused because it's going to be like what? What? Because <laughs> they they kill the governor and they also kill McDonald, the guy that was like the governor's assistant trying to help him. So it's yeah. just completely miserable, violent movie filled with hate. Um, I, I, I don't that, that if you oppress, if you well, create a system of oppression, the revolution to overthrow that oppression will often be as violent as that's, that's the, exactly the message that Paul Dean was trying to communicate with the original ending is that the violence, the cycle of violence would just keep continuing and there would really be no end. But then they had to change and be like, you know what? It ends here, right now. <laughs> I'm tired, guys. Let's just, let's just go home. <laughs> yeah, so I thought, I thought that'd be worth uh, bringing up. Uh, yeah, so anyone interested, I'd recommend checking out the unrated cut because uh, it's, it's interesting. Is it free on YouTube, though? Because that was very nice about this one. I don't know. Maybe, maybe take a look. I, I paid four bucks for this on Amazon. I had no idea. Though. Nah, you gotta get it free on YouTube. The next one is too. Like officially free on YouTube or like pirated on? I YouTube? think so. Maybe it's just because I have Amazon or YouTube Plus, but I'm but like it, it was like. I'm wondering if it's like even available in like Prime Video to buy the unrated version. But uh, while Chris looks that up, I'll just uh, start with like uh, going around with our final thoughts on this movie. So yeah, I do ultimately like this movie. I think it's a very, very cool looking movie in terms of the style and the tone. Like I was saying, like if you had told me this was like made in 1983 as opposed to like 1973, I would like believe you. I think it's very uh, forward in terms of like visual style and stuff. But ultimately, I do think the theatrical version is kind of a watered down version of the unrated director's cut. So like I can't watch this without the feeling of like, oh, this is like a compromised movie in a way. But I do think there are lots of uh, interesting ideas in the style. Like I said, is very cool. Mike, what did you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree pretty much with everything you said. Obviously, I haven't seen the unrated version yet, so I can't compare. But yeah, really effective, really well done, a fully realized world. I mean, it's one of those things, too, where it's almost like, you know, watching a movie during that was made during the Hays Code. Like, it's kind of fun to see how they are able to get away with certain stuff. Obviously, this is made well, way past the Hays Code. But, like, you know, seeing a movie that only has, like, a $1 million budget, like, seeing how they're able to work around that budget to create something that feels, you know, it's it's really, it's not like a one-location movie, but it's, like, a mostly one-location movie. Like, 
I, I watching them being able to, to, to turn that that low budget into something really cool, really interesting, really dark, you know, pretty disturbing and, and, and visceral. Um, I really enjoyed. So w- would definitely recommend this movie. Like I said, in my in my eighth rankings, number two for me right now. Yeah, this this one's hard because I think it was the the previous movies you sort of enjoyed being out of time that they're like such different than the cinema you know that like it's 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 interesting to watch them because everything you're expecting out of the movie they're not going to do because that's not like the expectations they had back then so that this is like a weird transition movie where like it's still everything's been upgraded the plot coherence is way better um but that you start to start seeing the corner edges of like the static shots in the action not quite holding it together um but that I, i i think so that when I was actually watching it every now and then I would be a little uh, a little bored just because it was expecting, uh, the plot was heading where I was expecting for the most part and then the action wasn't quite there. But looking back on it, actually just like the coherence of the enjoyment of, oh, here's a total thing that I can't see 12 plot holes in, it holds together way better for it. All right, very, very interesting, guys. So I hope you guys, your appetites are now whetted for the... Uh grand quote-unquote conclusion to the uh, original ape saga when next we meet we'll discuss battle for the planet of the apes where things are brought full circle in a way uh, not to give too much away but in the meantime i think all of us would like to hear what you know people who listen to us think about the planet of the apes movies that was a really awkward way of saying it but um mike people can email us right how can people email yes, us? yes email us at contact at the Tell us what you think about Planet of the Apes. Tell us what you think about each and every one of us and be very explicit what you don't like about us. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. But yeah, no, contact with postwriter.com or uh, DM us or just tweet at us at, at thepostwriter.com on Twitter. And uh, we'll, we'll get back to you and maybe even discuss your message on the show. And like, write, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it, because you can find it wherever you can find podcasts. So let's wrap up. So Chris, uh, what what have you got going on? You got any articles going up? Did you write something about Magic Mike Slash Dance yet? I have not. That that that's uh, still there. It's just just my few articles on Mike, and and now, now I've started to do a bit of editing. So uh, go check out the Post Writer. You'll you'll probably see something I've edited. Mike, what about you? How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, so I am on Twitter at mlevito. I am letter on Letterboxd at Ameramike, and you can find a lot of my work on thepostwriter.com. And if you just just Google my name, and and you'll find some stuff that I've written for other outlets as well. I'm not going to list them all off here. Yeah, you've written a lot of stuff about the Oscars recently. I did, yes, which is all a kind of uh, out of date now that the Oscars already happened, um, and also you, mostly you least... wrong. I got, I got. So the acting category is usually pretty easy to predict. I got three out of the four of them wrong. <laughs> um, and the one I got right was the one that everybody got right. So. But it, at least your pieces also had what you think deserved wins. So right. that's it, there's there's interest to look back on them, not just uh, the the predictions, but the what should have been. I was expecting a Tom Cruise, Jennifer Connelly, Miles Teller. And then if there was any other actress in the movie that she would win for Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> the, uh, the one female fighter pilot who died on Evo. Yeah, yeah what's her face? She was there. She was at the Oscars. Um, it would have been funny if it's like in lieu of actually giving it to a female, we're just going to give it to Val Kilmer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yep. So uh, check out Mike's out of date Oscars stuff. I, I contribute to the Post Rider as well. Mike and I do a series where we talk about old comic book superhero movies. I'm excited because we're we're gearing up. We're going to be doing one on the the Lost Fantastic Four movie from the '90s, which I'm sure most of you will be like, "What? They didn't make a Fantastic Four movie in the '90s, but they did." And Mike and I will soon be talking about it once we manage to wrangle each other and get into the the recording booth. Um, so check it out. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Letterboxd at the Lewis Ryan. Check out my thoughts on stuffs there. Um, this has been fun, guys. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Lewis. All right, uh, so check out our next episode where we'll be discussing the grand finale of the original saga of Planet of the Apes, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. We'll be doing the theatrical version, um, so check that out, um, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. If you're a fan of the Post Riders articles, podcasts, and projects, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. So once a week digests of everything we've worked on, what the site is up to, and other things we'd recommend each Monday. We don't believe in subjecting you to daily annoying emails, but we do believe in keeping our most passionate and loyal supporters in the loop on what we've been up to. We know how inconvenient and annoying it is to have your inbox flooded with constant reminders and useless material. That's why we run a curated weekly newsletter that gives you a once a week scoop. New subscribers help us know how many people are reading and listening to our work and want to hear more from us. So go to thepostwriter.com newsletter to sign up now.